Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your new bub, B, back with another edition of the Quarantine Digital Book Tour. Today, I am joined by the author of nine or ten books, I can't remember exactly, many of which I've actually read, which is a first for, uh, for this uh, series. I'll let our guest uh, introduce himself, but um, I'm today joined by Nick Mamatas. Oh my god, I fucked that up. <laughs> Keep rolling, dude. Keep rolling. It's Mama Taz. Mama Taz. I will tell you, Mr. and Mrs. Radio Land, uh, beat it ass first. I just fucked it up. But it's okay. Mama Taz. There was an attempt made, so it's okay. Yeah, apologies. uh, It's fine. It's totally fine. We're live, I guess. So, yeah, I am Nick Nick Mama Taz. I am the author of uh, several novels, uh, editor and recorder of several anthologies, compiler of a couple of nonfiction titles, and uh, it doesn't mean you've ever heard of me. You know, 28 books in, you never heard of me, but my first novel, Move Underground, which came out in 2004, is coming back out now in 2020, and I guess that is why I'm here. Yeah. Um, you're yeah. also, uh, as, I, as I recall, um, a crucial, if unknown, part of the, uh, the Tom Cruise Edge of Tomorrow movie. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, my I used to have a job at Viz Media, and I was the editor of the imprint Hakusuda, which is it was Japanese science fiction and translation. And uh, one of my first tasks there was to identify books that were good ideas for movies, as opposed to an idea for a good movie. But it turned out to be a good movie. And so one of the books was by uh, Hiroshi Sakurazaka by the name of All You Need Is Kill. I pitched it internally to our Viz Pictures producer at the time, and uh, through a series of miracles, including things that were basically not done anymore, like writing a script on spec. Um, I didn't write a script, uh, but somebody else, but we found someone to write a script on spec. It was sold to Warner Brothers for a couple million dollars. Uh, then Tom Cruise came in and was thrown away, the script was, because, uh, of course, the script was dependent on having an 18-year-old Japanese American, a Japanese character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Tom Cruise was in his mid-50s. So it was rewritten utterly, and uh, there were a lot of changes and back and forth. But my role was, one, identifying this book, two, writing the first treatment, because nobody would read a whole book in Hollywood. <laughs> And giving some notes on the first draft of the first version of the script. And I will say that uh, the two things that leaked through all the way over the course of the years from the germ of the idea to the release was the uh, log line, which was Groundhog Day meets Starship Troopers, which has been my most popular bit of writing ever. It's been in every press release and every news article for years and years. And for those who've seen the film, the main character, or one of the main characters has this sort of nickname of the Full Metal Bitch. And... My, and in the movie, this is not made very clear, except that at one point someone says, oh, look, it's a full metal, boom, and she gets, he gets punched in the face by her. And that was mine. That was my moment that survived all the rewrites and all the drafts. Nice. Yes. Um, but today, yeah, we're here to talk about Move Underground, which is a, a mashup of Kerouac and Lovecraft. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, a novel that stars Kerouac, or is... is um, from the point of view of Kerouac, has some some Neil Cassidy, some Burroughs. Um, yeah, so we were talking a little bit before uh, recording and uh, about how you're not the biggest fan of, of doing readings. Is that is that, that is correct? I can't stand doing readings, uh, and honestly, I've been to many readings, and most people can't stand doing readings. <laughs> most authors are like. They might, they might like to do events, they like to meet their fans, they like to meet readers, they like to uh, talk about their books. But uh, the reading portion is always challenging unless someone's an actor as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm someone who, I write books or stories designed to be read in the mind, privately, by an individual at their own pace. 
And so I tend to write very short books. Move underground is 60,000 words long. It's designed in a way to be written in one, set, in one sitting. And so the idea that I would take over and it would be my pace, which is a fast New York Greek American pace, which is very challenging for people to, to follow, would be very difficult for me. Also, I, I tend to stammer. I I tend to rewrite. I keep thinking, oh, who wrote this shit? You know, when I'm looking at <laughs> my own flow. So it, uh, it can be difficult. And uh, my most successful reading was reading something else entirely. Back when I first moved to SF or to the Bay Area, I was invited to the San Francisco Readings in Exile. And it was like Manifesto Day or something. And we all read from a different manifesto. And I read from the Twilight Manifesto, which, as you may remember from the book series Twilight, the fourth, the fourth novel is very controversial. Because uh, I guess the uh, werewolf character imprints on the baby. Yes. Like, like oh, this baby vampire is going to grow up and be hot. And I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> I'm going to nail this baby vampire, and the, uh, the Twilight Manifesto was an attempt to sort of defend this character against uh, charges uh-huh. <laughs> of supernatural and pedophilia. And I don't really care one way or another about this character or Twilight at all, but the, twi- but the manifesto seemed fun. And that was my, my best reading ever. <laughs> my, like, somebody else's nonsense that made no sense and had like a lot of factual errors. I like, said, well, if C.S. Lewis is Catholic, I'm like, oh, wait, C.S. Lewis is not Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is this the best book series of all time? No, it's definitely not the best book series of all time. It was just these four kids who really were eager to defend their boy, their imaginary boyfriend. Yeah. Whatever. And somehow I kept to this material and I did a great reading then. <laughs> but other than that, not great. Uh, and I'm not alone. Yeah, I went a couple of years ago to Ian Rankin, uh, the Scottish crime writer's reading. And he said, oh, I, don't, I don't read because I'm a crime writer. And I, I'll start giving away clues by mistake. Also, I don't want to. <laughs> so I'll tell you a series of anecdotes about my, about my amazing life. And it's like, oh, I know Van Morrison. And I met this wealthy person, and I was in, I was in Aruba. And I said, oh, I'll do that too. That would be great. I'll do the same thing. I'll have these events, and I'll tell stories about my life. He said that my life is boring and tedious. Because <laughs> I'm not Ian Rankin. I don't have a TV show. I've never been to Aruba. I don't know Van Morrison. I know nothing. So I can only tell, like, Ian Rankin's anecdotes. Yeah. <laughs> Or, or the Twilight uh, Manifestos. That's right, that's right. Those are the two things we got. <laughs> um, so I guess we'll probably skip the reading of the Twilight Manifesto you had prepared. Um, <laughs> that's right. And just talk, you know, okay, so here's a here's a very, I don't know, maybe this is a fluff question, maybe this is like down mm-hmm. to your deepest, darkest secrets, but um, so Move Underground is a three-word title. And yes. uh, throughout the book, I think every instance of underground is two words mm-hmm. is there is there a reason for that well on the road is a three-word title huh. and move underground is an inversion of on the road huh and, and sometimes on the underground can mean like, like the underground is one word means something different yes you know it means the underground like we exist in the underground or i'm heading underground but you can also just be underground Mm-hmm. I will say that the new edition, um, which is coming out next month, does change two of the undergrounds to undergrounds. Okay, yeah. So yeah, yeah I noticed that specifically when when there is a scene in a sewer, and I'm assuming. Right. Yeah, that's one that. Uh, yeah, that's when um, Carol meets Ginsburg in the, in the sewers under the, under the city. Yes. Yes. Okay. I mean, that is um, that is a more interesting answer than I was expecting. <laughs> And it's been helpful because my book's been pirated a lot because uh, many years ago I, I let it out as a Creative Commons book for free, mm-hmm. which was a terrible mistake because everyone assumes, or at least these uh, computerized aggregators assume, that everything that's in the Creative Commons must be in the public domain. Uh-huh. And so I found many and more than one occasion e-copies of my book with as Move Underground with two words, underground being one word, Move being the first word, and underground. Mm-hmm with the pirate edition from this Creative Commons list on Amazon, on BNN.com, on the Archives Free Library. 
Yeah. All on the something on this 19th century figure who dropped dead, and my book is free. That... I've had to uh, struggle to get it down. Yeah, that was a that was a question I was going to ask about because yeah, I saw that it was released in the Creative Commons, and um, I was wondering like what the what the process was for getting it republished was like. Like, was that a, an impediment at all? Uh, no, not really. Um, so, Move Underground is one of those weird little books. Um, at the risk of bragging, it's like a cult classic, meaning that nobody read it. <laughs> But the, but the 12 people who read it all got involved in publishing somehow. Yes. Like, oh, this book's amazing. This book blew my mind. I'm going to become a writer. I'm going to become a publisher. So last year, out of the blue, I got a tweet, uh, a direct message on my Twitter account from this guy who works for Dover Publications, who said, I loved your book when I was a kid, and now I, now, and now I work in publishing. Can I bring it back? Oh, cool. So, you, so they and, reached out yeah. to you directly. That's right. And Dover, which you or your audience probably knows as the people who do the Dover Thrift Editions, they're very inexpensive editions of, you know, Dickens and... Henry James and whatnot. And if you've ever been to a museum or a gift shop, all those books of paper dolls, like Little House and Prairie paper dolls or Victoria paper dolls or whatever, are all Dover publications. But a few years ago, they started doing things like uh, Authors with Pulses, <laughs> which, they, which they're going to stop, it looks like. They, there was a, a restructuring in November. The, the main guy was fired. They're going to refocus on paper dolls and public domain. But they're, they're still doing some living authors, and I'm one of them. Cool. And I, I mentioned, oh, you know, this is Creative Commons. There's going to be a lot of pirate editions out there. And so we don't care. We're, 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 we'll, we'll take care of it. We're still a big company or a big enough company to take care of it. Yeah. And uh, and I've also been more aggressive in getting, I mean, I don't, I don't care if somebody reads this book for free, but if someone's going to put it up on Amazon and charge four bucks for it, I want to get my two bucks out of that. Yeah. Four bucks. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, and literally just two weeks ago, I found one on Amazon that I had to get rid of. It, 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 it even lied and said it was the annotated edition. Is there an annotated edition? No. <laughs> I it, it was so. in my dream. It's my dream come true because the book is full of you know allusions to the Beats and the Lovecraft and to uh, different stories and different themes from the 50s and early 60s and uh, sort of esoteric Buddhism and, and stuff like that. So it can be, it can be richly annotated, I think. But no, it wasn't even it wasn't even copied in this version that they put like up there. Nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's. I mean, but Amazon I, did one. Did it get down in two days? That was nice of them. Or I mean, Amazon's not nice, but it was, it was they were efficient in removing it, so that was good to see. There was there was some worker there who did a good thing instead of exactly you know, yes. yeah. <laughs> instead of being in part of an evil corporation. Um, yeah. No, that's rad. Um, I. Should we? Okay, I have like personally very little knowledge or interest in the beats, but I have read mm -hmm. a, a shit ton of Lovecraft, and I have I have a few sure. Lovecraft questions if that's cool. <laughs> that is that's absolutely cool. Um, I feel like the first one is uh, this book features quite a few shoggoths, and mm -hmm. uh, they are very different than than the ones that appear in At the Mountain of Madness. Um, so in this yeah. in in Move Underground, they are not, you know, like, 15-foot spheres or whatever that do slave labor to the gods, the elder gods. They are sort of, like, manifestations of desire. And I'm wondering why that changed, why why still use the term Shogos. It, it, that might be some Lovecraftiana that I'm just not familiar with also. <laughs> it's definitely not. Um, I'll tell you, uh, there are three main reasons. One, when I was a kid, I read about Shogos before reading that story. From role-playing games and whatnot, or like little descriptions in the Monster Manual or something, and it was like, oh, they're a shape-changing, gelatinous form. They don't make them change shapes. Great, I'll have them change shape in anything, <laughs> <laughs> like like a person with a, with an outfit. Yeah, like totally. a little castle. <laughs> yeah. Um, two, it always confused me why these supernatural, you know, hugely advanced beings would need slave labor. Mm -hmm. Right, as as a good communist, as we as we both are being, we would know that. Uh, <laughs> At a certain technological level, you don't really need slavery. You you, know, you have different kinds of 
labor formation, so why would they have slaves? So there must be something else in these shagas that you can do. Three, um, just as part of revision or revising things, one of my favorite things uh, in the abstract is Archie Comics. Now, I actually can't stand Archie Comics, but I actually love Archie Comics because they'll have Archie as a zombie. Archie meets the Punisher. Archie loves Jesus Christ. Yeah. Archie has a weird soap opera on television. Uh -huh. They don't care at all. And I just think that's amazing that this, you know, what one would think would be this sort of, you know, uh, button down conservative corporation is like, oh, we can do anything with these characters and let's. Yeah. And I always admire that. And this is all in the, on the early days of that kind of thing when I was looking at writing this book. And I said, oh, you know, I'll do the same. I'm not going to be a slave to what Lovecraft said. I can make my own changes. And so in my saga, I saw these shape shifters who cogitate and have plans and are sort of uh, doing more advanced than drudgery slave work. They're doing sort of brain work for the uh, supernatural conspiracy, which they are part. But they also, at, at points, become the gigantic block. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Shoggoth's doing immaterial labor, labor is like fucking rad. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I guess in the in the um, in the vein of as not giving a fuck about the beats personally, um, I guess there's sort of two two things. Um, what, like, what's what what's your relationship with them like now and in the past? But also, like, uh, the question is, you kind of go in on Kerouac here without you know like. Without it feeling like you're just like attacking him, but not mm -hmm. letting him uh, get away with being kind of a homophobic piece of shit who sure, sure. turned like very conservative. Um, so, yeah. like, what was the yeah, what was the relationship there? Well, I mean, I mean, I would say that I think Kerouac was obviously queer as well as homophobic, which was not um, not atypical at the time, and as someone with his religious background and uh, his mommy issues and whatnot. <laughs> so. <laughs> I was on some level have some sympathy for him being tied in between these three worlds of very traditional, strict French Canadian Catholicism, um, kind of girl boy Americanism, like he was a football player in college and that kind of thing, and wanting this kind of bizarre—well, not bizarre, but uh, this unusual esoteric life um, that's about dealing with desire and, and annihilating it to reach enlightenment, but also just loving getting his hands on everything, get his hands on, right? Yeah. Totally. So that was interesting. Um, as far as my relationship with the Beats, I think I read On the Road as a Kid, meaning like as a teenager, my mother had a copy running around. She was not like a hippie or anything, but just, uh, you know, she grew up in the 50s and 60s. So at, at a certain point, everybody was issued a copy of Move Underground. So I found that I have hopes for the future for Move Underground. But yeah, so, so there was an old copy of On the Road. I was like, oh, this is a interesting book. I read it. It was pretty interesting. Closer to college, I got into Burroughs more, like every other you know, sort of young idiot kid in college. Mm -hmm. And I ran into, in the early 90s, an anthology of Lovecraftian fiction that included things like Alan Moore and Burroughs and uh, M. Gira from, the, from Swans, the band that I liked at the time a lot. And that was really mind-blowing. Oh, it's, it's all this old pulp stuff and also this beat stuff and also this post-punk semi-goth rock that I like. And that was kind of mind-blowing that Lovecraft could be as, again, as amenable to any sort of change as Archie Comics. Mm -hmm. And so to me, they always sort of had a relationship with Lovecraft and the Beats because of mutual weird discoveries. And they're both from New England. They both had weird relationships with their parents. They both had relationships with sex and sexuality. They were both uh, both very suspicious of and eager to experience the sublime. So it seemed that to me, it made sense to smash them together. And also, many when I was in grad school in the city, uh, in New York City, I spent a lot of time at St. Mark's Bookshop, now defunct, but like a legendary bookshop. And I remember one time going to the remainder table and seeing a book of Kerouac's letters and said, oh, wow, 
people like him so much that I'll even read his letters. And then I also knew that Lovecraft was a huge correspondent. Um, Bill Clinton of his letters, oh, people read Lovecraft's letters too. That's amazing. They read his church every stuff. And if I put them both together, everyone who loves Kerouac and everyone who loves Lovecraft will love my book, which was not the case. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is everyone who loves Lovecraft and Lovecraft, but at the end is the important operator there. It's people who love, who love this book for the most part, which is a very evangelically small set. But uh, thankfully, everyone in that set has a job in publishing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, happens to be running a uh, book club podcast right now. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like I should say, I have I usually have said this a few times, like, I, I just finished this book last night and, like, was really into it. And uh, in a way that, like, I, I have felt about a lot of Nick's books where I, they always seem like they have a ton of potential and then they, they hit and I'm like, oh, I want just a little bit more, which is... You know, both, I don't know, is that backhanded praise? Uh. <laughs> well, I definitely write short books. So as I mentioned, you've run around 60,000 words. I remember, I think I first encountered you when you reviewed a book of mine called Love is the Law. Yes. I think, which is about 55,000 words. Yes. And I tend to write short novels for a couple of reasons. One is that um, that I think is the more natural novel length. I think in the days before word processing, novels tend to be shorter if you look at genre fiction or even literary fiction novels tended to be shorter before word processing made every every more on a Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. But in the had to be a genius or a thousand page novel. Yeah. No, anybody can do it. <laughs> you know, if you look at something like the Wheel of Time, these large fantasy novels with it's like twenty five pages somebody falling down a hill. Yeah. <laughs> or, or looking for a sword or doing something rather or you know, flashing back to, you know, grandma's recipes. Shout outs to uh Terry Brooks. Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And the other reason I tend to write short is that I made my living when I started writing, writing term papers as a sort of professional academic ghostwriter. Mm-hmm. And so I had multiple daily deadlines, so my creative writing had to be squeezed in between writing about Plato and Hamlet and elementary education and whatever else the topics were. Yeah. And so I tend to write a lot of short stories. I love writing short stories. I always love reading short stories. And so my novels tend to be 10 stories in a row about the same characters. So I often don't have, you know, a strict fairy tags triangle involved with my fiction. And so I have both material reasons, you know, material background uh, informing my writing process and this ideological reason that I'm suspicious of a, of a very long novel. Although, yeah. I mean, there are long novels I love, like The Sotweed Factor is a long novel I love. I did that uh, that term paper ghostwriter life for a few months, and it was fucking exhausting. <laughs> um, so, yeah. like, congrats on years. that. <laughs> oh, that is impressive. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I will say it's harmed my career. Not not the, not the term papers, but the uh, but writing short novels sort of has harmed my career because people want where the market seems to want longer novels in a serious format. Yeah. They said the adventure of this character over the course of some years or some big battle, then their kids get adventures, that kind of thing. And I don't like that kind of thing. I don't really read them. I read a lot. I read a lot of the first two books of many a trilogy. <laughs> and I always left off the third book because I figured out the, I figured out the trilogy. I figured out how the what the writing is, what the characters are all about. And so I'm ha- I'm satisfied with the first two books of any trilogy. Same thing with video games. Like, oh, I I figured out this video game. I'm on level three. Great. That's all I need. Yep. <laughs> now I can the video's gonna go, I can stop. And so these are weird impulses that I have, and the the end result is shorter now. Yeah. It seems like there is a there is a bit of a of a market right now that maybe hasn't been quite mm-hmm. as tapped. I'm I'm thinking of, you know, like uh, authors like JY Yang, um the Tensorit saga, the series of novellas and like 
I guess yeah, sure. a lot of like a lot of tour uh, coming out with novellas um, that are like really exciting, but also like you have to fight back that part of your brain. Like for me, it's the video game part that's like, ah, but will I pay seventeen dollars for a thing that will only last me a few hours? I want, I need you know, right. the best value for my money, which is a, a garbage brain. <laughs> Yes, and that's a, that's another sort of material inversion of what's happened. Like word processing made writing long novels easier. Ebook sales and reading on the phone made short novels more interesting because mm -hmm. now I can read something that feels a little bit like a novel during my commute. Half an hour into the city, read in the morning. Half an hour out, read in the end. You know, finish it up, and I've read a novel in a day or a short novel in a day. So I think ebooks are better for the short novel to to make a bit of a comeback because you can get easily lost in a long novel yeah. where you don't have this you, have, you don't have the sensory information of holding a big book in your hand knowing how far along you are totally it can be confusing to read infinite jest or whatever in on the phone which i tried and then had to stop yeah i forgot about my phone though i, I figure if, if, I'm, if i'm ever stuck on the bart there's a big earthquake and i'm stuck on the ground for four or five days while they dig me out i have something to do <laughs> that would be a that would be a very interesting um setting to read infinite jest in i feel like absolutely yes. especially in quarantine times so <laughs> just yeah. like hey what about this post-apocalyptic america um <laughs> yeah it seems like good news now most dystopias seem pretty fine these days yeah for real <laughs> like bring on the the year of the depends adult undergarment <laughs> we got this <laughs> absolutely yes. oh so okay you did mention very briefly riverdale the uh the archie comics uh adaptation for the cw is that a, have you watched that i watched some of it yeah speaking of of long things uh i i just watched the entirety of season four um like two days ago because there's a heat wave going on and i felt miserable mm -hmm. and oh. what a what a good show i like that i like that show a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, i've not been keeping up that much but i've seen a bunch of it on uh netflix mm -hmm. and i remember seeing a tweet about uh archie escaping prison and fighting a bear Mm -hmm. And uh, going back to like, take his SATs or something, and I sent it to my friend saying, "Look at this funny tweet." And she's like, "Oh my god, you spoiled the show for me." <laughs> like, oh, is that, does that really happen? Like, it seems like it's in prison already. He's like, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry, I spoiled the show." Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it just seems so far fetched. Yeah, uh, the the show is good at that. Um, it's I think I think my thing is like I I really actually liked the first season a lot because it was just a lot mm -hmm. of inner interpersonal dynamics. Of yeah. these like very malleable characters and getting to see them do an actual good job of like pacing out cross cutting between conversations and shit like that was like huh yeah CW's got some good directors going right now I guess <laughs> yeah like better than HBO you had a cinematic feel yeah and uh, I read a bunch of Archie comics so I'm like oh yes the Southside Serpents <laughs> every little thing the Red Hood I get it yeah so I'm a I'm a fan of that kind of synoptic synoptic triggering of oh yes i i understand that reference is the kind of thing i enjoy i yeah. do underground as all of synoptic facility as well totally yeah um yeah. i so, yeah so to get back to your book that we're you know ostensibly talking about um, yeah i think the, the the first thing i noticed about it you know just reading through chapter one i was like this is a this is kind of a barn burner like the the first chapter of this book is just like is full like everything in the kitchen sink in like a really a really good way um you do not you do not start this book with a, with a slow burn you know introducing everyone to kerouac's work and the the extended mythos of lovecraft it is it is like fuck you let's go um that's right yep uh, i'm wondering was that like a you know first novel kind of thing or is that i mean a, a lot of your books do that so that's kind of a ridiculous question yeah it's a fine question actually i mean there there is 
Well, I think something to point out, or people may not care about this, but of course, most first novels aren't first novels. Mm -hmm. And this is not my first novel. This is the first novel that got published. My real first novel was more first novel-y, and that was about everything I like. And about my friends and my neighborhood and all these crazy things that I know about and all this stuff I was interested in. And of course, it's unpublished, full and garbage, but it, but it showed me I could write 80,000 words. Yeah. Which I've never done since. <laughs> you haven't even showed me 80,000 words. But it's certainly true that many first novels that are actually first novels do have all your hobbies, all your sexual predilections or interests, all your weird experiences in some city or town, all the scores you want to sell against your parents or your high school bully and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so in one way, I'm very lucky that I, I get to publish my second written novel as my first novel. Um, but I think at the time, I was just thinking, well, hey, everybody knows Kerouac. He's in schools. Right? You get a, you get a signed Kerouac. Uh, when you go to college, maybe less so in 2020, but certainly when I was in school in the 90s, people were still reading the beats pretty seriously as you know for academic texts. Yeah. You think of like a book on a post-war American fiction on the road would definitely be on that. Yeah. Uh, so that's... And Lovecraft too was was a very popular. You know, he's a cult figure, but he's also extremely popular. He's you know uh, rats in the walls is in every little kid school book. He's on cartoons, video games many, many editions, so I figured everybody knows these things, which was another another misstep in my career, <laughs> to think that everybody knows these things. Not that it would have changed anything. I just would have adjusted my expectations right. to say, yes, people will complain that they don't understand the book, and but some people will. Like, you're, you're raising a black flag and seeing who salutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, I don't mind having done that. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. The, the book, I guess, does have a lot of uh, presumptions or illusions, I guess, depending on, uh, you know, which angle you're coming yeah. at it from. Yeah. And I will say, you don't need to know, understand, you know, know both sets of motifs and tropes to understand the book, but having familiarity with one is extremely helpful. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I think even, I, I would suspect you don't have to know, you know, you don't have to be able to recognize that Shoggoths aren't... Uh, you know, manifestations of desire in Lovecraft, like I asked you about earlier. Right. If you just have a, a broad understanding yeah. of, you know, like if you read maybe part of On the Road in college or high school or, you know, and like, you know, have played D&D &D once, I think you can get a, a pretty good amount out of this book also. <laughs> exactly. Oh, uh, yeah. Also, if you're into weird books, because yeah. it's written like a weird book. It is, I mean, I was self-consciously me thinking, oh, I know, I wrote a book that everybody likes, who are, who's a weirdo. And all these weirdos will find other weirdos to sell the book to each other, you know, that kind of thing, like Geek Love or something. Mm -hmm. When you turn 17, you're a weirdo, here's the book. I'm still trying to do that 20 years later. I still want to write the book that does that. That's like the Geek Love or like a Confederacy of Dunces or that kind of thing. Right, yeah. Where it becomes a part of, part of one's cultural uniform. And so people like weird, that kind of book, that kind of cult fiction also tend to like this book, even if they're not familiar with either The Beach or Lovecraft. Yeah, that makes sense. Um... Yeah. Okay, I have. I do want to do one more, at least, uh, deeper, deeper Lovecraft question. Um, sure. Yeah. So uh, one of the one of the interesting things about reading this is I feel like most of the sort of Lovecraft inspired stuff that I've read in the last I don't know five ish years um, mm -hmm. doesn't really do the cosmic horror part of Lovecraft or like that's not the stuff people are pulling from super hard. And this this book is is full of cosmic horror. Um, <laughs> And I'm, I'm wondering if that's like, is that what you're most interested in Lovecraft or is it more like part of the time or something else? Um, yes. Partially, it's something my interest in the cosmic horror and cosmic things and cosmic scope. It's the same reason why I love to read hard science fiction because it has that cosmic scope. Mm -hmm. But the, the antagonism of that hard SF is the laws of physics. Yeah. And a lot of drama that can be had there. Unfortunately, it tends to be propaganda for the Libertarian Party, but... Yep. Um, 
the cold equations. It needn't be. Exactly, yeah. And so when I was working at Hikasudo, I brought over a lot of Japanese SF that was hard SF because they don't have that kind of same libertarian impulse. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, economics isn't physics, although it wishes it were. Yep. <laughs> so I love big cosmic things. It also dovetailed nicely into, into Kerouac's motifs and his themes. You know, he's influenced by Buddhism. I don't know if you understood Buddhism. I don't understand Buddhism. Uh, but they go, oh, this is a big thing. It's huge and amazing. And also, it's all false. <laughs> there's something else behind it. Well, what is it? Well, we're not quite sure. Well, we'll find out that that can lead to both the sublime and the terrifying. Right. And in fact, my next book of Dover is an anthology called Wonder and Glory Forever, after the line in Lovecraft's Shadow of Vinsmith, which reprints Lovecraftian fiction that is... Uh, Primarily focus on awe and the sublime, as opposed to dread or light humor, which is the other sort of Lovecraftian mode that is very popular these days. Right. So we have a book of Lavalin there, Molly Tanzer, Nadia Bolkin. So that'll be a, a book that sort of cements the theme, like it's a bookend to move on. And then I shall be done with Lovecraft. This time, I promise. <laughs> it's. I mean, we're all always already done with Lovecraft, you know. <laughs> exactly. And that keeps coming back. But I tend to agree. The, the, the recent contemporary Lovecraftian fiction tends to be rightly preoccupied with his reputation um, as a racist and a xenophobe and an anti-Semite, which yep. is all mostly deserved. Um, and people are sort of struggling with that. Oh, he's just, you know, major figure. I read him as a kid. I like playing the role-playing game. But he's so terrible. What does that mean? And so a lot of the impulses around uh, regional Lovecraftian fiction is take, is, take that, old man. Yeah. You know, anxiety of influence, right? The tribe and totem. Yeah. People destroying the fun other, which is a good project, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's only like there's 75 years of terribly racist Lovecraftian fiction, Lovecraftian petitions that you know, sort of really embraced his reactionary attitudes to have 10 years of, of counter, countering that is totally fine, totally great. Yeah. I became sort of aware of the science fiction community, like the, the readership community and authorship community, right around the time when uh, I believe it was Nanetti Akorafor was uh, pushing back against the mm-hmm. World World Fantasy Award uh, bust of Lovecraft. That's right. Um, yes. So it's been it's been kind of a nice. That was like a, a a moment where I was like, oh, maybe these maybe these people aren't all just reactionaries. Maybe there is something happening in science fiction that isn't the cold That's equations it, yeah. or yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think for me, a lot of the a lot of the stuff I've been exposed to recently is also like comes out of the the new weird tradition. Um, I, it's, oof. Mm-hmm. Did I just call that a tradition? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I think like probably my favorite book I've read so far this year is um, Sylvia Moreno Garcia's um, Mexican Gothic, which mm-hmm. like takes that takes the weird and takes it in a very different direction and. It's like exciting to see that stuff too, which is which is definitely fuck Lovecraft, um, mm-hmm. but also like what would what would it look like in you know 1950s Mexico, right? Like post-revolutionary anti-colonialism uh, yeah. in Lovecraft, which is yeah. Anyway, and of course Sylvia is a great fan of Lovecraft. You know, she ran Insmith Free Press, which was right. a Lovecraftian press. Um, she published my book, The Necronomicon, which was uh, my Lovecraftian short fiction, mm-hmm. and. Future Lovecraft, Historical Lovecraft, a bunch of other Lovecraftian anthologies and books. And uh, no, she's well-versed in Lovecraft. She wrote her thesis on Lovecraft uh, and, and race politics or, yeah. or uh, the pseudoscience of race. So it's not just a poison pen, it's not just a take that either. It's definitely a, a deeper thing. I've not read Mexican Gothic, but I just finished yesterday her uh, crime novel, her noir novel, Untamed Shore, which also had cosmic horror in it, even oh. though it 
nothing supernatural, but just the the, the, the main character is a uh, young Sylvia Maria Garcia-esque character <laughs> in, in, in the late 70s in a small town in Mexico, absent father who loved Hollywood movies and uh, Spanish films as well, uh, reactionary, hyper-Catholic mother. All of the influences that are telling her to, this character to be good are themselves malevolent or reactionary or oppressive, you know, uh, machismo politics, uh, Catholicism, uh, uh, sort of a strangling nuclear family. And she has a way out if she hooks up with these sort of career criminals, like these noir-style, Mr. Ripley-style, Highsmithian criminals. But should she? And there's a third alternative as well, and she takes a third alternative. But uh, since so she can't turn, return to Catholicism to the traditional morality to guide her, because it's been nothing but bad for her, she uses a, sort of these visions of sharks in the sea that are being torn to shreds, but are also these primal, primordial beings and omens and kind of references to um, Mesoamerican mythology and folk beliefs about the body that are all these cosmic horrific th things that sort of influence her decision making this sounds incredible um yeah no it's really great check it out untamed shore okay. out now and it's also about crafting that it's much like robert block robert block wrote these suspense novels for the most part not a lot of supernatural stuff but the descriptions inside the novels of the characters cogitations and thoughts were often limbed with supernatural metaphors and themes and motifs so in a way it was also crafting that mode huh okay yeah, so definitely check that out yeah I've, i'm not familiar i my most of my like knowledge of the is, Block was a contemporary of Lovecraft, right? Oh, well, he was a kid when Lovecraft was old, so he was like getting a, yeah. a fan letter from 13-year-old Bobby Block to 47-year-old about to die H.P. Lovecraft. Right, okay. Yeah. I, yeah, most of my knowledge of that that scene, I guess, is like M.R. James and um, William Hope Hodgson, and those are like the guys I've, I've actually read, um, oh, wow. who are great also. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess just in, <laughs> I have a I have a note that I wrote that I didn't really have a question for, but in the spirit of um, saying fuck you to old man Lovecraft, um, All right. I I I figured a, a an alternative uh, logline for this book would be Lovecraft, but if, if he could actually write characters, um, mm. uh, <laughs> for Move Underground, obviously, um, yeah, because yeah, there's a, there's you know you are you are taking Kerouac and Cassidy and Burroughs. Uh, and a little bit of Ginsburg and a handful of other folks, too. but like, they're they're actually interesting people. Uh, I think outside of even any deep knowledge about any of the individuals, and just wanted to shout that out because that's a thing that gets um, missed in genre fiction pretty often. <laughs> yeah, I will say that when I wrote the book, I was young and arrogant. You know, I was clearly like some kind of a dumbass. Uh, but my <laughs> thought was, what if Lovecraft could write sentences? <laughs> and I so mean, I said, oh, what, what kind of sentences would we get to this? And I thought, oh, these beat sentences, I'll use them. But I will say, having having written the book and having read a lot of Lovecraft since then, Lovecraftian fiction, and, and worked in the Lovecraftian mode, you know, a fair amount, I will say I was wrong, and Lovecraft can write sentences. Mm -hmm. He often doesn't, but he yeah. can. <laughs> yes. And so his top stories definitely show a, a polyphony of voices. So you'll have that very, you know, the cliche Lovecraftian uh, 17th, 18th century diction, but also newspaper articles. I mean, just like a newspaper article from the 20s. Right. Letters between people who, that read like people, like a letter people would write. Old guys in Vermont, you know, with their funny accents talking about strange things they've seen that sound just like when I lived in Brattleboro, Vermont. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, 
100 years later, it sounds just like the accent, the time, the pacing of, of the diction, all perfect. So he can do it, and he does do it, his, but his, his project is so weird that he's really a difficult writer, and he's not contextualized like a difficult writer. He's contextualized like, like Pulp Fiction, which he was, and that was his, you know, material roots. Yeah. And so people look at it and say, oh, this is not fun. This isn't, this isn't exciting like Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon. <laughs> what the hell is this? This is like homework. And they think, so they think he's a bad writer. Right. But uh, indeed, he was not interested in characters. That's, and that, that was what he said himself is aesthetic is not about the human condition. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So that's his own condition. I mean, many of his protagonists are him. Totally. And they all go mad. Yeah. Um, which yes. is an interesting reflection on him, I guess. <laughs> Um, well, writing is therapy, but it's not very good therapy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's useful to have a therapist sometimes. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, I guess just like one one other very small thing before I let you go. Um, you sure. you, you mentioned um, the the term papers as like influential on your writing and um, mm-hmm. and you know your first books, I think. Um, that I'm aware of that you had published were um, were like the joke books for men and uh, and starve better. Is that is that accurate? Um, no, those came a little bit later. Starve better um, is a writing guide for those who don't know. Mostly writing about writing short subjects, either short nonfiction or short fiction for quick kind of fast money, but not good money. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was definitely influenced by my term paper living because I also I also was writing for the Village Voice and for tech magazines and for semi underground lifestyle magazines back before the internet destroyed everything at least in the, the, the late 90s early 2000s yeah I did a lot of nonfiction a lot of a fair amount of journalism and essays and things like that writing books are always uh, sort of uh, bad for me because would say oh sit down and write your novel and then you wait a year get an agent or another year to get it published and then at the end of four years you'll get an advance I said yep. well I, my rent is due on the first yep <laughs> it, it's the 15th I can do something better than that so so it was a focus on short subjects. And so I'd already been writing for quite a while and I published a couple books before then. So my first book was a novella called Northern Gothic. Uh, then this was Moving the Ground. Then a couple of small collections and a small anthology with Prime Books. Then um, a couple of small novels and other pieces here and there. And then I got a job and my job made me more productive. When I was living full time as an editor, I didn't have to worry about getting 50 bucks to pay my phone bill or 30 bucks to pay my electric, electric bill every month. So I can actually sit down and have reflective time to write more novels. They weren't any longer, but at least there are more of them. So uh, Strawberry came out, I think in 2012. It was a lot of my old blog posts, my old live journal days, and articles I'd written and original content that I produced for writing and publishing advice. I've been in publishing for a while too. And the little joke books were just things that sort of were uh, given to me by my friend Stephen Segal, who was the managing editor of Weird Tales, who then moved to QuirkBooks. And he had a lot of these little work for hire projects. And like Nora Jemison did one, Kat Valente did one. He like all of his cohort got a couple paydays doing these tiny books. And so book number one, paid for my vacation to Scotland. And I love Edinburgh and I love Glasgow and that was great. And vacation and book number two paid off my last bit of my credit card debt. And but they were very easy to do and very easy to compile. And they were they were very term paper y. You know, one was called Insults Every Man Should Know. So I wrote a couple pages of flavor text and collected like historical insults. Same thing with quotes every man should know. I had the really impulse toward educating men. Yeah, I was just like, that was their line. They have, they have a men one and a woman one, and I'm sure they'll come up with non-binary ones once the market that seems clear. Yeah, but if they can sell two of the same book, where one for girls, one for boys, you know, pink and blue. Yeah, and so those were those were quick money things. But that's what everyone, except for the most famous people on earth, do. I mean, every uh, you know, I was thinking about Elizabeth Hand, one of my favorite writers, who wrote the uh, Catwoman novelization, <laughs> and. Uh, 
why'd you do that well you're already you're gonna practice writing somehow you may as well get paid for it yeah this is my thoughts not her thoughts or uh, Perry Bisson I want another wonderful writer who I love so much you know he wrote like Boba Fett juvenile novels for Scholastic huh. and uh, at, at one point like some kicking said oh Boba Fett's my the best novel of all time it's the greatest novel ever and Terry just said kid you ain't read any novel yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's okay to do those sort of side gigs and, and well you know the pot boiling is a entire modern tradition and the reality yeah. is unless you are born wealthy you have to do something right yeah if i whether it's a day job or using your writing skills to do other things whether it's writing you know could copy for websites or uh, technical communication or anything like that you may as well spend your time doing more writing that's my point of view anyway I, uh, as a, as a one-time technical writer, as somebody who has uh, worked in content mills, don't, done term papers, I, uh, strongly agree. <laughs> Excellent. I just have to do the part where I actually write a book someday. Um. Are you writing a book? No, I, I, I'm taking a break from fiction, uh, for the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh. Oh, <laughs> time has come. You're in quarantine, you got nothing better to do. That's, that's true. I, it's novels and sit-ups, yeah. right? <laughs> I prefer planks, personally. Um, I always yeah, fuck up my back when I do sit-ups. Yeah, it happens a lot. Yeah, I just do a crunch instead of get. Yeah. Cool. I Thank you for answering that, even though I barely half-asked a question. Um, no worries. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. I guess the... Yeah, before we let you go, is there... Um, how should people... How should people support you? Um, like, what's your... What's your internet... Uh, how should people order move, move Underground? That sort of anything like that? Sure. Well, you can you can follow me on Twitter, which is uh, hashtag or, or <laughs> at sign and mamatas. That's M A M A, like mama. T as in Thomas. A S. All the vowels are A's. As I tell every telemarketer I've ever spoken to. <laughs> and that's that's the main public uh, venue for me. Um, I am recently laid off from, but still very friendly with Books Inc., a local book chain here in the Bay Area. And uh, I'd re- highly recommend you buy my books, including Moving Underground at booksinc.net. And if you leave a little in the little order form, I will sign this book for you because I will go visit the store and go to the back and sign books as they come in. So if you like, if you like a signed and inscribed book, booksinc.net is great. Uh, if you don't care about that, try the publisher, Dover Publications. Um, they sell it directly. Try your independent bookstore. In your neighborhood, they'll they'll need your help these days. Of course, most stores are shut down, but many of them seem to be doing curbside delivery or uh, pickup, and they can definitely use your help. Uh, Bookshop.org, basically anything but Amazon. But if you really, really want to buy your book from Amazon because your grandma gave you a gift card, go right ahead. It's not a big deal. Yeah. uh... That's that's the order of preferences. BookSync, anywhere else, then uh, grandma money to Amazon. Yeah. (laughs) They're they're slow these days, right? The the advantage was Amazon was faster. But now there's so much toilet paper and hand sanitizer that the books are uh, sort of uh, slow-boated out anyway. So you can find a new, faster place at bookshop.org or just make a system online, your bookshop. Yes. Uh, Yeah, we're doing, I think there may be some uh, curbside pickup things happening there too pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're local to Berkeley and Oakland, Pegasus is a good idea. And or uh, your local store is always the best. Yeah, just shout outs to the you know booksellers and uh, to East Bay booksellers also in in in, uh, in Oakland. Oh, that's right, East Bay booksellers, Moe's, yeah. Mrs. Dalloway's, all the good ones out there. And I will say also that uh, Dover Publications, which is you know as I, we talked about before, specializes in, in public domain books, um, also makes books very inexpensively. So this book is twelve dollars and ninety five cents. 
That is a, a perfect, a positively like a bargain title. Like you're not going to get a cheap one on Amazon anyway, so you're already going to get your deal no matter where you go to. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so I am going to, well, you know, follow me on Twitter or whatever if you haven't yet, which you haven't. Um, listeners, me and oh, yeah. Nick have been oh. on. <laughs> yeah. We, we have chatted a few times on the internet. Um, yeah. And also shout outs to uh, the rebels in Minneapolis and may they overturn this terrible police state. Um, Absolutely. And, and thanks to WJ for our music. You can find him on SoundCloud and to Noah Bradley for our artwork. You can find Spectology at SpectologyPod on Twitter or email us at SpectologyPod at gmail.com. Uh, hell yeah. Right, thank you so much for having us, B. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad this worked out. Um, this was a really delightful yeah. conversation. That's right. Stay safe. Mask up. Hell yeah. <laughs> for both reasons. Thanks, everybody. Yes. Thanks. Thanks.